Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. We typically view the American Civil War from the north or from the south, but tonight we approach it from the east, across the Atlantic. Britain, British recognition was the hope of Confederate foreign policy, British cotton buyers the hope for the Confederate economy, and its shipbuilders and sailors the means for thwarting the federal blockade. It's the last of these that we'll look at tonight as we learn about a captain and his vessel from John F. Messner, author of A Scottish Blockade Runner in the American Civil War, Johannes Willie of the Steamer Advance. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building here on the campus of East Carolina University. Not, however, representing the university uh, or its beautiful snow-clad campus this evening. Uh not uh, speaking for anyone but myself, and likewise, my guest will do the same as we always do here. It is the uh, last Wednesday of January 2022, uh, as we enter the, I believe, the 18th uh, spring season of Civil War Talk Radio. We're a couple weeks into classes here at East Carolina University. A lot of students are self-reporting that they've been exposed to the COVID virus and can't come to class or shouldn't come to class. And uh, yet we're still going face-to-face, still teaching, hoping that will continue for the rest of the semester. Uh, I mentioned it's snowing uh, here. This is very unusual. Happens maybe two out of three winters that we get any snow at all here in eastern North Carolina. But since we did have some uh, tonight's non-paying and, again, completely unaware of themselves sponsor of the show uh, will be L.L. Bean, uh, who produced the parka that I got out of the closet to wear uh, 
this past week as it actually got cold enough. Uh, this park originally belonged to uh, my father-in-law, and I essentially inherited it from him, uh, I don't know, 23, 24 years ago. <clears throat> He'd worn it for a long time. I've been wearing it for a long time. It's still good. And uh, since I only need to take it out two or three times a year here in North Carolina, it, it may last, uh, <clears throat> I hope, the rest of my life, too. Uh, but we did have some snows. I saw on the Weather Channel, if you if you watch the Weather Channel religiously, and uh, who does not, they had some video from Greenville, North Carolina, of snow everywhere because it was so unusual. And the person was talking about how beautiful the view was, and the view, curiously, was of the Brewster Building, which is possibly the least attractive building on the entire campus uh, built in the brutalist 1960s raw concrete style. Uh, it, it's it's not a handsome building, but but there we were uh, with snow in front of us. And, and so uh, if you were watching it, you might have seen my office or the other side of the building from my office, perhaps. Well, uh, enough about what's going on outside uh, the, the windows here at East Carolina. Uh, inside, we're talking about Civil War here on Civil War Talk Radio. Next week, we'll be talking with Deanne Blanton, author of the co-author of They Fought Like Demons, Women Soldiers in the Civil War, and she is also the founder of the Society for Women in the Civil War. We'll talk uh, with her as a historian about this uh, perspective uh, and we'll come back the following week, February 9, with Jonathan White, who's been our guest here uh, several times before. He has two new books to talk about. One, uh, well, they're both about Abraham Lincoln and African Americans. One about letters written by African Americans to Abraham Lincoln. Another about their visits to him in the White House. So we'll get get that perspective. And we'll have more. We'll, uh, you can find out always who's coming up when you go to www.impedimentsofwar.org and uh, Mark Gaffney will tell you exactly who's going to be on there. He sent me an interesting message this week about the fact that uh, uh, Alexa, the, the Amazon speaker, will in fact play this podcast if you ask it to. It will play any podcast if you ask it to. It would be really cool if it would only play this one, no matter which one you asked for, but it doesn't work that way. Um, and so if, if you need yet another way to tune into Civil War Talk Radio, you can just just ask for it. Uh, looking further ahead, uh, June 18 through June 26 of this year will be a Civil War uh, This Hallowed Ground tour put on by Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. I'll be leading that tour. If you get a chance to sign up and come along, it'd be great to have you. And if you're in this neck of the woods in February here in eastern North Carolina, uh, ask me about uh, Wade Sokolowski's tour of Wise Forks, the nearby battle area close to Greenville. So lots of big things and little things going on for touring. Uh, and, and you know where to find out about them. Let's move on and talk tonight uh, about a... Scottish blockade runner in the American Civil War, uh, Johannes, I'm probably saying that wrong, Johannes Willey of the Steamer Advance. It's written by John F. Messner, who is a curator of transport and technology at the Riverside Museum in Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, 
John, welcome to the show. Hi, Jerry. How are you? Good. It, it's um, uh, let me start with a hearty "Go Blue" uh, <laughs> to a fellow Michigander. Yeah, uh, thank you very much. Uh, so, uh, not not yeah. the best in the, of the season, but a great season overall. Can't can't complain. Cannot complain. Any season that ends with a victory over Ohio State uh, is a good season. Uh, with apologies to our Ohio State Buckeye listeners. <laughs> Uh, some of you are out there, and uh, it, you had enough wins. It's time for us to yes. win. Um, Indeed. Few and far between those wins, so it's, it's good to be able to celebrate <laughs> one. We have to enjoy them. So, uh, John, the back of your book says you're originally from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, my wife Emily is from, from Grand Rapids. Uh, so the first question has to be, uh, how did you uh, become a public historian uh, moving from, from Michigan to Scotland? Um, yeah, I did my undergraduate degree at Butler University, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the things they, they really pushed there was study abroad. So I, I did a semester over in Glasgow when I was uh, undergraduate, and then when I was finishing up, uh, I thought about I wanted to work in museums as a career, and uh, there's a great program for a master's degree at University of Leicester in England. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I ended there just a, a one-year course, master's degrees in England, um, and after that, I was able to get a, a couple jobs in, in the northwest of England, in, in Manchester, which is quite appropriate for um, talk about cotton in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. But then in 2006, I moved up to Glasgow, um, and the reason for that was I I'm, I'm, was with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, and she's from mm-hmm. Scotland. So I wanted to move up here, but it was also a great opportunity to come and work for Glasgow Museums and work at the Transport Museum in particular because we were just starting this building of this, a massive new uh, capital project, this new Transport Museum for the city's collections. So it was a great opportunity mm-hmm. to be on the, on the ground level of, of a great project as well as being closer to my now wife. Well, that, that's, I had that opportunity not, not to meet your wife but to get in on the ground floor of a, uh, a big museum project when I started my career as a historian uh, in in, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, the other side of the state from Butler University, and uh, it, it, you, that that feeling, being able to to work with artifacts and create something that you know is going to last for years, uh, uh, there's nothing like it, is there? No, no. I mean, Glasgow Museums. I mean, we're not just transport technology; it's a kind of a whole museum service. So, um, I I usually look after our locomotives and our railway collections and things like that. But we also have natural history and fine art and social history and costumes. So being able to develop these new displays, these new story displays for our visitors, but also have at your fingertips more than just kind of the usual maybe um, uh, genre museum kind of artifacts, being able to call upon other uh, colleagues in these other fields was a, a great opportunity. And, and the best opportunity was talking to people and, and telling their stories in the museum. And that's obviously, although 150 years later, but continued on with, with this book. So is that, was it the museum that got you connected to this story of this blockade runner? It is, yes. Um, the Riverside Museum opened in 2011, but soon after we started developing even more displays. You can't just have the ones you just opened with. You want to be right. you know, new and, and refresh. So for 2015, we wanted to open up a display about blockade runners because we have a great collection of ship models, well, all different types of ship models, but quite a few of those are half hole models and full models of these blockade runners, and they all came from the actual shipyards that built them. 
Mm. So they're not amateur models. They're not kind of post-war. They would have been done in the 1860s or very soon after. So I worked with our maritime curator because, um, and she doesn't mind me saying this, um, she has an amazing um, knowledge of the maritime side, but when it came to the American Civil War, she said her knowledge extended to Gone with the Wind and Little Women. Oh, dear. So we were able to work together because I, I had, a, I'm not a Civil War historian by, by trade, but I did <laughs> have uh, a background in it. So working with her was a fantastic opportunity, and we had uh, scheduled for display this amazing oil painting of the advance. And um, any of your listeners who know about the blockade would know that the advance is a, quite a well-known vessel. It made uh, numerous trips through the blockade. Uh, its story is out there. It's been kind of talked about since the war itself. So there wasn't a huge amount, you, you would think, that would come out of recycle or researching something like that. Mm-hmm. But this painting, which is by Samuel Walters, a very famous English maritime artist, um, was owned by Jonas Wiley. That, that's the way I say it, Jerry, and I'm, I'm not going to complain about your pronunciation. <laughs> because just, I, just I tell you, what, one of the things that you know, got me into the research itself was looking at this painting mm-hmm. and seeing this name and thinking, well, who was this person? You know, can we tell a little bit about this? Because this painting was owned by him. Mm-hmm. So going into the uh, you know, established history of you know, Stephen Wise's book, Black, um, Lifeline of the Confederacy, there's also a great book by Eric Graham about the Scottish side of it. When you're going into their books, but also in contemporary records, and trying to find this name, um, it's spelled all, all different kind of ways throughout the years. Um, and I, I couldn't really put my finger on who this person was. You know, in some of the... Uh, wartime accounts, he's mentioned as being Scottish, sometimes he's mentioned as being English. English, even today, is sometimes a catch-all term for anybody from these, from these isles. Right, for Americans. And that's what yeah. kind of got me into thinking about, well, let, let's tell a little bit more about this person who owned the painting in the display, which is mm-hmm. one big display case. It's not huge. But that kind of started to snowball as, as research kind of builds, and you might be familiar with that kind of project, and suddenly you think, oh, this will be a paper. Right. Oh, no, this will be maybe for a journal. Oh, oh maybe this has enough for a book. Um, and, and that's where, coming out of that display, Jonas Wiley's story really started to uh, interest me and became something that I think is actually quite a worthwhile story to add to the history of, of the Civil War. Well, this, Wiley really is a, 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 a slippery figure, and, and your book you, you explain in your introduction and, and you talk throughout about the sources uh, used to track him down to uh, to try to identify his, his history. Uh, he has different first names. He's, sometimes he's John. Sometimes he is uh, you know, Jonas, or, or uh, uh, you know, sometimes he's English. Sometimes he's Scottish. Uh, it's, it's sometimes he's a captain. Sometimes he's the sailing master. Not clear exactly what his role is, uh, or it seems to go back and forth. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, was it frustrating to try to to follow this twisting path? A, a little bit, and and I'll, I'll tell. I mean, his name was one of the things, and it's still a bit of a mystery. Um, he indeed, as you said, he was born John Wiley in 1828 um, here in Scotland, in the Scottish borders, just north of the, the English border. And um, all of his early life, that was his name. Um, he ended up going actually to university at, at St. Andrews University in Fife. And that back at a time when not many people went to university. So he must have had kind of an academic mind. 
Um, and soon after, he didn't complete his studies, and soon after he, he set up as a, a local school teacher, still being known as John Wiley. Um, and at this point, you know, I'm researching his history. I'm, I'm looking to try to find why he went to sea. It doesn't appear that any of the family members were mariners or sailors. Um, he, was, he was from the land. His father was a gardener and a farmer. But in 1851, 1852, while a teacher, um, he explains in some of his um, uh, later um, references to his, his younger days that as a teacher, he was made fun of. Um, basically, someone put an article or wrote a letter to the local paper saying that the local teacher, John Wiley, and there was one only, only one John Wiley locally, mm-hmm. had fallen down basically drunk after leaving the pub one Friday night and was run over and killed by a cart. Um, and he wrote into the paper saying, well, I'm very much alive. I don't know who, who, who sent that letter into you, but it's obviously false. And one of the great mysteries is, soon after, um, he left that position of his teacher and he went to sea as a 24-year-old apprentice. So uh, quite old for apprentices at that time. Mm-hmm. So my, my theory, and I kind of talk about it a little in the book, is something must have happened. There's some kind of argument, maybe over a woman, maybe romance, you never know. But he left his, what looked like a burgeoning career as a teacher, and went to sea, basically on the lowest rung of the ladder, on a, a sailing vessel bound for India. So he becomes a sailor. It's not, not in his blood, necessarily. Uh, and, and, and the war comes along. You point out that a lot of people decided to go uh, blockade running from, from the U.K., uh, in part because there, there was so much profit to be made. Uh, one interesting comment you make is that, that they, you'd say the sailors did this. They would uh, sign up for the, these lucrative voyages without much thought of the, the politics or morality involved, uh, especially in supporting the Confederacy. Was there any hint of that in anything in Wiley's career? Did he ever think about um, it? I, I think the overarching uh, kind of uh, reason people did this was there was a need, uh, obviously these mm-hmm. vessels needed crew, and as you just say, there was huge profits to be made from anyone mm-hmm. from an able seaman, uh, a stoker, up to captains and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and Wiley being on the advance, it was owned by the state of North Carolina, so the profits as a public institution um, weren't necessarily the same as a private, private institution, but they were still considerably larger than what he was making as a, a first officer or a master before that. But in terms of Kind of the, the political aspect, um, they're, not, they're not fighting for the Confederacy because they're not on mm-hmm. armed warships. Uh, they're actually trying to avoid any kind of armed conflict because if you're chased and captured by a federal warship and you don't mm-hmm. fire back, you don't kind of do anything other than run, then as a, a foreign national, a non-combatant, as we call these days, you mm-hmm. basically get a bit of a slap on the wrist and can be released quite quickly back. And then you might sail back over to Bermuda, maybe back over to England, get on another ship and come over. So I think the overarching kind of motivation for these, at least, at least the, the, the kind of the sailors, maybe some of the, the Royal Navy officers who were on furlough, although I, I don't want to speculate, but most of them were just mm-hmm. coming because the, the profits were just seen as so, so much bigger than what they were getting paid monthly as a, as a steamer bound for Europe or on a liner bound or, a, sorry, a, a tea clipper bound for India. So it, it is lucrative to do this. Um, let's talk a bit about the, the system of blockade running. When I first 
learned about the blockade and, and blockade runners kind of naturally thought, well, you load up your ship with uh, whatever the Confederacy needs in Liverpool, and then you sail across the Atlantic, and then you go really fast at the end and try to slip into Wilmington, and then you sail back to England. Uh, but that's a long way to go back and forth, and these ships are, are really quite small, uh, the, the runners, blockade runners themselves. So they don't actually cross the Atlantic every time. Uh, how, how does the system work? No, no, they don't, they'll make that one crossing, hopefully, from mm-hmm. Liverpool or Glasgow or London. Um, at the start of the war, um, some of the larger vessels, merchantmen, could make it into the ports of the south. But as the blockade started to tighten, um, the, the slower vessels, uh, they just couldn't make it. So that's where the states, the Confederate states and the, and the private companies turned to these side-wheel paddle steamers. And these were really the kind of high-speed, high um, uh, technology vessels of the day. These were on the kind of trips between Glasgow and Dublin or, or London and, and the continent, but they weren't meant for really heavy ocean waves. Mm-hmm. They can make it across the Irish Sea, no problem, but across the North Atlantic, they're not designed for that really. And even from Bermuda to Wilmington or Nassau to, to Charleston, you still can get hundreds of miles of, of open Atlantic waters. And that's where actually, when it comes to the threat to the crew and to your ability to make a profit, it's the natural hazards, which in some ways were even more dangerous than the the man-made hazards of the the blockading fleet. Um, For example, uh, Wiley's uh, first blockade runner, he was was actually on three during the war, was Mm -hmm. the Advance, which was originally launched as the Lord Clyde in uh, July of 1862. And this was like the technological kind of marvel of, of British steamship uh, technology at the time, capable of 18 knots. It could do 350 horsepower. I mean, this was a speedster of the open waves. And that, that's why these vessels were being identified as that last run. As you just said, Jerry, they don't come all the way across the ocean. You have mm-hmm. your larger merchantmen bring over the supplies, the the clothing, the boots, the weaponry to Nassau, to St. George's, where they're taken on to these runners, which can go a lot faster than most of the Union vessels. They usually have quite a shallow draft because a lot of them were built for uh, uh, rivers or coastal kind of uh, services around Britain so they can make it up to Cape Fear or they can get um, close to the, the surf without worrying about beaching. And that's where that, that kind of technological design aspect of these vessels really came in, that, that last, that last uh, part of the, of the run-in. Now, the United States government had to know this was going on. They, they, could, they had agents in, in Britain who could see the shipbuilders at work. Uh, did they just, like, send a message back, oh, some more blockade runners coming over? Did they try to stop them? Um, they did. And in, in, in my research, in, in the newspapers of the day, 1862, 63-64, I mean, the Glasgow papers were full of, of announcements of either ships being bought up by Confederate sources or being purchased uh, or, or being commissioned uh, as a purpose-built uh, vessel. So this was not a secret thing. Um, warships were more of the concern for, mm-hmm. for federal um, kind of agents or, or want to call them spies over here. Um, because that is where um, they'd be looking to see if anything was being built and being armed. 
mm-hmm. you can kind of cover yourself with a blockade runner because as Wiley did when he first brought the Lord Clyde out from Glasgow in 1863, um, it was a British-flagged, British-owned, British-crewed uh, vessel. So you can't really point to it and say, well, we, we know that's going to the blockade, but there's no mm-hmm. physical justification to either stop it in British waters or to stop it by the time it gets to Nassau or Bermuda. And then at that point, you can kind of plead ignorance as you're running in to one of the Confederate ports. I, I love the, the scenery you describe how uh, before it left Cardiff and Wales on its last leg getting out of the British Isles, uh, the local American consul says, you know, I'm sure this is a blockade runner. It probably has contraband aboard, some, some illegal you know, no weapons or something. Mm-hmm. And they search it. Uh, you can see yeah. the authorities to search, but they don't find yeah. anything. I mean, the Lord Clyde leaves Glasgow on the 21st of May, 1863. And a day later, it's already being reported in papers across Britain that it's, it's, it's left, it's heading to Cardiff. And because the Alabama, the CSS Alabama, had recently left British waters, Mm-hmm. There was a lot of concern that anything leaving these waters could be converted into a warship. Now, the Lord Clyde was never going to be converted into a warship. So it's not really suitable, but the, such was the kind of the hysteria at the time that as it was making its way from Glasgow down to Cardiff to refill with the, the best Welsh coal mm-hmm. to make the long-distance uh, North Atlantic journey, um, it was assumed that this was going to be a warship or you know, at least being a blockade runner. So the council there in, in Cardiff in South Wales, Charles Dexter Cleveland, heard about it coming into port, and he petitioned uh, the British government to say, look, this is obviously a blockade runner, we need to stop it. He arranged for uh, it to be boarded and to be inspected, and it wasn't carrying any um, material of war. It was carrying you know, blankets and, and other kind of other things and some medicines and so on, but it didn't have a full hold of, of cannons or salt mm-hmm. or anything like that. So it, he, he tried to get it to stop, and you could actually say it's the first time the vessel was actually you know, hunted or, or tried to be caught by a, a Union uh, officer. But unfortunately, at least for him, he wasn't able to affect any kind of... Um, uh, any kind of uh, re- retaining of the, of the vessel there in Cardiff, and he had to let it go. And that's when it first came over and made its way to Bermuda to start its um, blockade running career. So it, it it is successful at first. It has a number of successful runs. Uh, on the first run, it, it comes in, and because it's been purchased by the state of North Carolina, it, this is a state ship now, uh, Governor Vance is Governor Vance the reason it's named the Advance. Well, that has been a debated since the time of the war, and I chose to use Advance, so A D hyphen Vance, mm-hmm. because there are multiple reasons or multiple kind of uh, thoughts about how it was named. Some say it was just the Advance, the one word, or, or just the word itself. Advance, mm-hmm. as in going to Advance. So Governor Zebulon Vance, as you said, the governor of North Carolina, or A.D. Vance, uh, possibly named after his wife. And hmm. this has been uh, raging since that time, and it's one of the things I thought quite carefully to try to um, make, make a convincing argument. And the convincing argument I chose is um, the Vance papers, which are held at the State Archives in North Carolina, where most of my research on the blockade-running side of the, the story comes from, um, has quite a few letters from Vance to 
to Wiley, to uh, other politicians and so on, and he tended to use advance. I'm not going to say he did all the time. So that was one of my reasonings. But also there was another um, member of the crew, James Maglin, who was an engineer. He joined the crew in Wilmington after it first made its run in June of 1863, and he stayed with it the whole time, similar to Wiley. And later on in his life, when interviewed uh, early in the 20th century, so 40 years after the war, he was adamant that um, it was advance, so ad with the hyphen and vance. So it does have that connection to Zebulon Vance for sure, and that kind of connection and how it became purchased by the state and how Wiley became associated with it is quite an interesting story. But it's one of those that um, I'm, I'm sure, you know, I, I advocate a, uh, a naming of it now, but I'm always happy to listen to other people when it comes to, uh, you know, going forward in the future. That's what us historians do, don't we? We add to the, the kind of historic record, but always open our minds for future research. Sure. There, there are always interpretations that will evolve. Mm. Uh, it, you describe how when the, the advance arrives in Wilmington, goes uh, up the Cape Fear River, the governor wants to come and see it, given it's got a name like his, and he, he <laughs> just bought it for the state. Uh, but, of course, the, the vessel has to wait in, in quarantine, something we're all familiar with these days, uh, because of yellow fever before it can, can land. And the governor gets it uh, to overrule that and, and has the, the, the vessel come in. And uh, we're going to take a short break in a moment, but I just want to leave us with the thought that uh, imagine a politician saying, uh, I don't have to follow the quarantine rules. Uh, everyone else does. Uh, that could never happen today. Uh, <laughs> But it happened uh, with Governor Vance in uh, 1863. Uh, We'll take a short break. We'll come back and talk more with our guest tonight, uh, John F. Messner. He's the author of A Scottish Blockade Runner in the American Civil War, Jonas Wiley of the Steamer Advance. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD, using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. 
That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with John F. Messner, author of A Scottish Blockade Runner in the American Civil War, Joannes Wiley of the Steamer Advance, or A.D. Vance, or Advance, uh, as we talked about in the last segment, a name that no one's still quite sure of to this day. Uh, John, the, 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 the Captain Wiley had a successful career, but he had some really close calls, uh, uh, on that ship in, in some of their runs. Uh, that that it, It's not an easy thing to be a blockade runner. Um, no, um, it's, um, it's one of those that, as, as we mentioned before, you have natural uh, kind of um, hazards to worry about, mm-hmm. you know, large o- ocean seas and storms and so on. And then you also have the ever-strengthening Union blockade around Wilmington, and that's where... Uh, the advance always ran into it being owned by the state of North Carolina. So Wiley himself recounts several um, close shaves, close calls with both of those kind of, of hazards. Um, and I was able to merge his stories in with, I mean, there's quite a few other accounts from either passengers or, or crew members or even daughters of, of some of the men who served in North Carolina who tell stories about, you know, taking one of these um, trips either in or out of the blockade. And there's a great one, which is very well actually documented for one run, which is in October of 1863. Um, the advance is coming back in from Bermuda. And there's no less than, than three um, kind of diaries or accounts from passengers on the vessel or passengers or crew on the vessel, as well as Wiley remembering his own time on the vessel. And, and what happened in, in that um, particular voyage in is that Wiley, and I, I should have mentioned this before, one of the reasons why I, I was really interested in his story was because he was always more of a footnote in the history of the vessel, and the vessel is very well studied, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. but it's always mentioned that there's two other uh, commanders of the vessel, Thomas Morrow Crossan and John Julius Guthrie, uh, both Americans, who are always given kind of the preeminence uh, in terms of commanding the vessel, and there's no doubt they both did that, and Crossan actually was one of the commissioners that was sent by Vance himself to come over to Britain to, to find the vessel and to purchase it. Um, but Wiley was um, more, I mean, I make the case that he was more experienced with modern British technology in terms of these paddle steamers, and he was able to source up a crew in Britain. But anyways, on, on this, on this um, voyage in October of 1863, it's, it's Thomas Crossan is in overall control, and uh, Steve Wise actually gave me the word supercargo as, as possibly as over control, making sure the state's interest is, is overseen. Well, Wiley, as you said in your intro, is sometimes mentioned as the sailing master, so the man in charge of the actual operations. Mm-hmm. But they're coming in from Bermuda. Uh, they, make, um, they make land. They, they see land quite far north the, from Wilmington. They think they're on their course, but they've, they've been blown off to the north. And that's in the evening, and they wait to the morning, and they're thinking some of the passengers' account that they're going to come back out and wait to the next night, but the Crossan and Wiley decide, no, we're this far in, we've got a, a high-speed vessel here, if we could stick close to the coast, we can make Fort Fisher, and if we make Fort Fisher, we can get into the new inlet and hopefully catch the federal blockade fleet unawares. 
So they run high speed south towards the fort. And, of course, if you're going to try to run during the daytime, which is something you never try to do, you always try to do it at night and under a new moon if possible, of course the Federal warships spot them. And both the passengers and crew accounts, one being from a um, returning Presbyterian minister, Moses Drury Hodge, who'd been in Britain buying biblical texts for um, the the Confederate um, civilian population, he um, recounts that the vessel is sailing at full speed and you know, cannon shots flying over them and it's a close call and they make the guns of Fort Fisher they're able to get that protection and they turn into the new inlet but they ground on one of the sands there and that was always one of the issues with uh, the Cape Fear um, it's, it had some quite narrow and shallow channels that's why the pilots that were on board all these vessels were key to the success you know as much as the, the captains definitely in terms of their pay they were seen as key to the success and the advanced grounds there uh, below the guns of Fort Fisher. So they should be okay. They're feeling that they're not going to be able to be captured at all, but there's still a concern that overnight that the Yankees might try to put some boats towards them and catch them or at least put fire to the, to the advance. Mm. So some of the passengers leave, but Wiley and Hodge and another one of the passengers, James Burton, who's um, from the Macon Armory, who's coming back on a more martial visit to Europe, not for Bibles, but more for military terms. They mm-hmm. form a bit of a militia uh, on the advance and kind of um, serve as a guard overnight while it's being lightened, while some of the cargo is being taken off. So in the morning, hopefully, you can sail up and get, either get to Smithville or somewhere a bit farther up the river. So uh, there's some amazing accounts, um, and that's even before I was able to find Wiley's story. Mm. And this is where I really should kind of point out that most of his um, quite interesting tales from either the Civil War or before the Civil War come from a single source, which is the, the People's Friend. Now, The People's Friend mm-hmm. is a magazine that was founded in 1869. It's a Scottish magazine published in Dundee, still going today. And it is primarily then and now a women's magazine. In the 1860s and 70s, it was more kind of a working-class women's magazine um, nowadays, it's the kind of magazine you might see on your granny's uh, table in her lounge. Um, so if you mention People's Friend to anybody in Scotland, they have a vision of what it is. Mm-hmm. And that's a magazine of action, uh, romance, jam recipes, things like that. Um, so in 1889, an article appears about Jonas Wiley called The Great Scottish Blockade Runner. And luckily for me, there is a copy in the National Libraries of Scotland. I myself have not been able to track down another physical copy. But I was able to order it from them. And when I got it, I'd already had a lot of the kind of what I call the bones of the story. So crew lists, newspaper reports that say uh, when the ships left, sometimes cargo and manifests. So interesting, but not kind um, uh, kind of telling more of the story. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I get this uh, digital copy from the National Library of Scotland, and it's 15,000 words of just pure sailor's tales. I mean, some oh. of the things in there, you know, shark attacks, poisonings. This is before he gets <laughs> to the Civil War. And in the Civil War, he's talked about these daylight runs and being chased by federal um, warships. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, well, th- this is a good adventure story. I'm not sure I can count any of this kind of actual, as a you know, historian, I'm going to take this with a big grain of salt. 
But when I started matching up a lot of the information from the Vance archives of the State Archives in North Carolina, the other items from the British um, kind of newspaper archives, it, it turns out everything matched up, and these other kind of passenger accounts. So this People's Friend article uh, forms a lot of the kind of his own personal recollections from the book that I included in the book. Um, and he did, in that People's Friend, he has four runs, while he's on the advance, including his first and his last, when he's captured by the USS Santiago de Cuba in September of uh, 1864. And then he also tells his stories about pre-war. And then after the war, um, Jonas Wiley comes back to Scotland. And the weird thing is, as you mentioned earlier, we talked about, you know, there's a lot of money Mm -hmm. in running the blockade. And you would think that after 15 successful runs on the advance, that he'd come back quite well off. When I was looking into it, and um, it, either he, he didn't flash his money, which is a possibility, or he didn't come back rich because he was being paid $1,000 per successful run as a captain, mm-hmm. but that was being paid in, in Confederate notes. Ah. And as you so. know, by the end of the war, those were pretty much worthless. Um, that was one of the complaints by John Julius Guthrie, the, the previous um, one of the previous commanders who did two full uh, turns on the block on the blockade with the advance. Was he wanted to get paid in gold, mm-hmm. and the governor was kind of Governor Vance was like, no, 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 that's not the agreement that we had. Um, you'll get paid in in, in notes and in, um, in bills. So um, I'm wondering, and one of the things I mentioned in the book is his first few um, runs. Um, there are bills, um, what we call checks these days, uh, that were retained in the North Carolina archives that show how much he was paid. Uh, for example, his first paycheck from the state of North Carolina was for 270 pounds. Now, it's hard to kind of make that into a modern equivalent, but I can tell you that less than a year before that, as a first officer, he was getting paid eight pounds a month. Mm. About so 270 pounds was... Yeah. I mean, if you take it from when the Lord Clyde left Glasgow to when he got paid, that was only three months' work. So you can mm-hmm. see just how much money, not even as, as one of the, the private um, blockade runners, how much money you could make. So he, um, he's, doing, he's doing well with this. Um, you mentioned he got caught, and, and uh, we'll, we'll save it for the readers to, to read about that last venture when the... Yeah. Santiago de Cuba uh, catches the advance after an eight-hour chase. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's a great story. In fact, this book is full of great stories. The um, uh, uh, what happens to uh, uh, Wiley himself after he's caught uh, in that after that eight-hour chase? Uh, well, what does happen to to a blockade runner uh, when they're captured? Sure. They, um, if if you're caught. Um, you'll be boarded by the, the federal vessel. And, and what you'll try to do is you plead a bit of ignorance mm. because you could say, oh, no, we're, we're just kind of a, a merchant vessel. We didn't know a blockade was on, and, and <laughs> that doesn't usually fly. But if, if you're uh-huh. a British national or, or an Irish or, or French or Swedish, and, and there were French mm-hmm. and Swedish sailors on the advance, um, as mentioned, um, as long as you didn't you know, actively fight back, you're going to be taken in. Um, either taken, the crew were, most of the crew were taken to Norfolk and dropped off there, 
And at that point, if they can't be held for any reason, um, and this is how blockades worked for, for many years, mm-hmm. they'd just be released. Wiley himself, as commander of the vessel at the time, was taken as witness to New York to the prize courts. So there's prize courts mm-hmm. in New York and Boston. And whenever a vessel was captured, uh, they'd be kind of a bit of a skeleton crew would be put on board from the, the federal vessel or vessels that captured it. They'd take it to one of the prize courts where they would sit um, and deem it to see if it was a lawful prize. Um, and Wiley was deposed there, and that is still in the National Archives in New York. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting reading, but it's a bit dry, put it that way, um, mm-hmm. because he tries not to incriminate himself, obviously. But he's taken there, he does that, he fulfills his obligations, and then he's returned uh, basically to Britain, where he comes back over and becomes a commander of the deer, another blockade runner, and gets captured again. And as I said, most of these stories come from the people's friend, but he also, over the end of his life, when he came back to Britain, he, he was a farmer, mm-hmm. he didn't own any kind of massive house, shows he didn't, maybe didn't have any money, and he gave loads of lectures about his time during the war to local crowds, always in the aid of a local charity, maybe the school, the church, someone falling on hard times, uh, until his biggest lecture in 1901, which was held at a, a grand hall in Kirkcaldy, the, the big t- market town near where he lived in Fife, and all of the, um, the, the, the gate money, well, all the, the kind of mm-hmm. proceeds went to him and his wife, which tells me that by the end of his life, if he had made money in the blockade early on, by the end of his life, it appeared he didn't have much. And he gave over 20 of these lectures, always well attended, um, as someone who went to St. Andrews University and was known through some of the accounts of passengers as being uh, a good storyteller, you know, could, could recite poetry. You can only imagine what these kind of tales of, of, of blockade running and other maritime sailors' tales would have wowed the crowds for years and years and years. Well, the the uh, the stories are great ones, and uh, you know, listeners, there are more stories that we've talked about tonight uh, between the covers of this book, which I was saying is a very beautifully produced book. It is uh, it's oh, very heavy, very dense, um, uh, glossy pages, so the illustrations are, are beautifully reproduced, and uh, just weighs a lot for for the, for yeah. its size. It's, it's not not I was a huge. Very book, very happy with Whittles, the publishers. They they did a great job on it. Um, as a museum curator, I love to put as many images in as possible, so they were able to right. include almost everything I asked for, so it was great. Well, it's, uh, it, it is a, an attractive book and an interesting one. Um, uh, listeners, uh, you'll want to get a copy of this and, and learn about uh, a Scottish blockade runner in the American Civil War, uh, Jonas Wiley of the Steamer Advance. That's the title of the book. Uh, it's author is our guest tonight, John F. Messner. John, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for getting up in the middle of the night uh, over there in, in Scotland and, and talking with us here in the United States. It's a lot later where you are than where, where we are. Uh, so so thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, oh thank you very much, Jerry. It's, a, it's, a, it's been a pleasure, and I hope your listeners enjoyed it as well. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.